You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to AOA. We appreciate you being a part of our discussion today and what a discussion it's going to be. We're going to dig into what's developing in the protein markets with Dave Weber, Senior Animal Protein Analyst with Terrain here in just a moment. Before segment two, we're going to go down to Mexico. Keith Miller, ex-chair of the U.S. Meat Export Federation, currently down in Mexico on a trade mission. We're going to hear how that looks. What do they do as they're trying to promote U.S. beef overseas or at least across the border, of course. And then in segment three, we're going to check in with our friend Arlen Suderman, chief commodities economist with Stonex, and we will see what these markets are doing on the grain side later today. But first, we're going to dig into the volatility and the movement that has been percolating in these protein markets for the better part of three years. Joining us to help us do that is Dave Weber, senior animal protein analyst with Terrain. And Dave, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having us. I want to talk to you about what is going on here in the cow herd. First and foremost, Dave, liquidation has been the name of the game in 2022. Is that trend still in place today? It is. It is. The the drought in the west and the central plains uh, extending clear up into the northern plains really just uh, driving uh, smaller numbers, uh, moving cows to slaughter. Uh, we've got uh, some generational transition going on. So we see some older producers deciding to exit the business. And then we've got, um, you know, just high production costs. You look at hay prices, hay inventories are down, um, hay prices through the roof uh, as a part of, uh, you know, as higher uh, grain prices as well. I mean, you look at hay prices, really you can predict them by what corn and soybeans doing, um, you know, corn acreage and soybean acreage taking some of those Midwest acres out of hay production. Um, you know, just it's it's tough on the on the cow calf side. It is. And you mentioned the generational shift we're seeing happen. Dave, have you looked into these these cows that are leaving these ranches in the northern plains? They're leaving ranches that are owned by 70, 75 year old ranchers. Are are those cows ever coming back to those countries? I think there there may be cows coming back to some of that country. Uh and there probably will be. I mean, if there's gonna be grass, I mean those are ranches that really are good for one thing. And so we're going to put cattle back on them. Okay. Uh, they just might be under different ownership. Yeah. We might see younger guys, um, you know, the 30 to 50 year olds that are looking to expand, uh, taking on some of that lease ground. I'm not sure that the, the business allows them to go buy those ranches. Right. Uh, for the most part, as we look at the next uh, four or five years with interest prices where they're at, I mean, just buying cows, the, the interest charge on cows doubled. Oh. Um, so we got to figure out how to come up with another hundred bucks on these cows that we're buying now for financing them. Yeah. Um, you know, you look at cow prices, uh, through the West here, you got, uh, um, you know, bread heifers in the 22 to $2,500 territory. You look in Missouri where there's grass, there were some show me select cows that were, or bread heifers, excuse me, that were over three grand. Yeah. Um, Numbers I haven't seen since 2014, Dave, and, which, and we haven't, no, but, and they, they sound high, Yeah. but you look at what those calves are going to be worth. You look at what it takes if we keep a beef replacement heifer this fall for 2023 to breed in 24 to calve in 25 to be beef production in 2026. Um, 
these bread, the breadstocks where the value is. It is because they're the front end of uh, the cattle price cycle. Right. And so this is my question, Dave. And we've been talking about the changing leverage in the cattle price cycle. The Packers have had it right since 2017. That's been the margin. That's been the leverage. It's moving back down the chain. It would appear to me, will the feedlot producer have more leverage here in this next year or will it be the cow calf producer oh it's gonna go it's gonna eventually get to cow calf guy okay and it's gonna get there pretty quick okay um i think when we look at uh, leverage in the feeding business they're gonna have a little better position for negotiating especially the guys renegotiating contracts uh formulas those kind of things um but they're a margin business and so they've got to manage input costs mm -hmm. and those aren't as, as you mentioned aren't cheap no. uh, we look at uh you know feeder cattle now in the 180s calves in the kind of one or uh, um, feeders in the 180s, calves in the in the close to $2 kind of territory. Um, we got to figure out what to do with feed grains and get them cheapened up before we can do a lot more on calf prices and and those things just to, to have some opportunity down the, down the system. Right. Or we've got to see live cattle prices continue to accelerate and put some premium back in the back end there. Dave, do you see the live cattle price continuing to push higher? Uh, I, I think it does, okay. you know, if especially if we look at it from a cycle standpoint. You know, this year we're probably in the 159 to 161 kind of average territory. Next year we can probably put uh, 6 or $7 on that for an annual average standpoint. Really what it's going to come down to is what can we get done in the beef market. Yeah. What are consumers going to do? And we're starting to see some, some resistance on price. Uh, demand has struggled uh, through the back half of 2022. Um, you know, we, we saw beef prices at retail decline from May to the end of the year. And when you do it on demand basis, we're doing those with, with deflated real dollars. Right. And so demand took a hit. Um, and but spending, it, it, that's a statistical sort yeah. of mirage. The demand from consumers was exceptional, just the way we break the data down. Am I getting it right? Well, spending was exceptional. Yes. So if we look at nominal, point. you know, real or nominal spending, what they spent the cash in out dollars, of pocket, cash yeah. out of pocket, uh, record large in 2022. Okay. But can we keep that up? Right. You know, what do we What do we expect consumers to do in 2023 uh, during inflation? It's not been great news. I think at retail it's probably okay, but we're seeing people trade out of food service, and that oh, and that's, that's hard on middle meat prices and values as you go through the balance of the year. That's one of the headwinds we've got. Uh, we need to continue to see you know consumers spending. Um, Decent money on a yeah. on a deflated basis is about thirty five dollars a month on a real or yeah on a nominal basis we're in the kind of mid forties per month per person on beef expenditure on just beef yeah. okay forty bucks a month that's what we need yeah. we need this country spending more than that more to than move that. prices higher we, we probably need to stay in that forty five or forty six you heard him basis. folks get to the grocery store get that yeah. checkbook out yeah. and it it's it's going to be um, it's, it's part of the budget piece and we can figure out how to spread that across the pounds we can produce fewer pounds more pounds. Right now, we're in the spot where we're going to produce fewer pounds and add more value and add more value to it uh, in terms of price. But then we've got you know the competitive nature of what's going on at the meat case. Right, chickens coming chickens back. Chickens coming back. Chicken prices are way down. Uh, especially you look at well everything on a chicken carcass. Breast meat's down two thirds. Uh, wing prices are down two thirds to three quarters. Uh, what they were a year ago, um, you know, boneless, skinless prices at wholesale now is in the kind of one fifteen to one twenty territory. Super Bowl demand didn't didn't push prices back didn't up. Didn't help at all. wings at all. Huh? Yeah. So and th and that's a function of a lot of what happened at food service, uh, taking chicken wings off the menu because uh. there was no margin for them, and people got used to eating other stuff. 
Uh, when we look at, uh, you know, grilling seasons coming, the pork cutouts got a struggle on its hands because rib values are half what they were a year ago. If you look at back ribs, yeah. we're four bucks today. They're two bucks spare ribs, kind of the same scenario. 50% yeah. of what they were a year ago. Those are hard dollars to make up on a carcass. Right. I mean, where are you going to go get that money? Ham hams aren't better than they were a year ago. Loin meat's about the same. So it's, huh. it's a struggle. It is a struggle. We've got to see the consumer get out there. Dave, of course, you write for Terrain. Tell our listeners, where can they go to see some of your writings? Yep. Uh, we, you can find all of our stuff at uh, terrainag.com. And we've got uh, a variety of analysts. Uh, I do animal protein. We've got uh, grains and oil seeds, dairy, uh, rural economy. We've got a guy, Matt Clark, who does a great job on uh, rural economy and interest rate stuff. So I encourage folks to go see it. Covers the gamut, folks. Stay with us. We'll have more from AOA when we return. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. I've been farming my whole life. I don't need somebody to come out here and state the obvious. I don't need anybody to explain my farm to me. My local co-op works with CHS, and they know what I need when I need it. A global network of support, local expertise, and valuable market options. We need a co-op that's here for us. So we can own every day. When you're an owner of a local cooperative connected to CHS, you get local expertise, a proven efficient supply chain, and global market access. Learn more at cooperativeownership.com. Welcome to the 2023 Corn Sprint. Corn is in the blocks and ready to run. Biopath and Power Coat plants with a strong start to take the lead. Fueled by Mosaic Biological Fertilizer Complements for maximum performance and better nutrient uptake. We're seeing a strong return on fertilizer investment in this sprint. Biopath and Power Coat corn just continue to grow ahead. Improve your corn's nutrient use with Mosaic Biologicals. For corn that stays on track in the sprint, start training at cornsprint.com. Do you know how much one stock of wheat is worth? Well, you're about to find out. Wheat is a member of the grass family that produces a dry, one-seeded fruit commonly called a kernel. There are about 1 million kernels of wheat in a bushel, about 50 kernels per stock, which if we do the math is about 20,000 stocks of wheat per bushel. That means that if a bushel is worth $8, then each stock is worth about 0.04 cents. So, you would need 2,500 wheat stocks to equal $1. Now that one bushel of wheat will yield approximately 42 pounds of white flour or 60 pounds of whole wheat flour. A bushel of wheat makes about 42 pounds of pasta or 210 servings of spaghetti. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. And in the United States, one acre of harvested land yields an average of around 45 to 50 bushels of wheat. So if you ever wondered how much one stock of wheat was worth, now you know. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. Hey, Dad, your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad. Your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. 
Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today. We're talking about the protein markets there with Dave Weber from Terrain in segment one. Now we're going to continue that focus on moving meat. This time we're going to talk about the physical stuff, the meat itself down in Mexico. U.S. Meat Export Federation is currently running a trade mission down to Mexico. Joining us from that trip is Keith Miller, former chair of the U.S. Meat Export Federation, very active in corn and soybean groups across the country. Keith, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Let's talk a little bit, Keith. What are you learning down there? What are you working on in Mexico this week with USMEF? Well, we're working on several things. One is we're trying to expand our market share down here and trying to hold back some of our competitors and uh, achieve more of that market share. Another thing we're trying to do is we've been talking to the uh, Mexican consulate and the uh, head of USDA on the GMO issue with the corn because that's a major issue for our country and their country. So we've been working on that too this week. Absolutely. That is a huge issue. Keith, I'm going to go ahead and let us reconnect you on the phone here. We're going to make sure that uh, that we can get you a little bit better off. So I'm going to go ahead. We're going to get Keith reconnected here, make sure we can get that phone signal through a little bit more clearly here. It's tough when we're talking across borders with our friends from the U.S. MEF down in Mexico. But we do have some other news while we're waiting for Keith to jump back on the line. We've got some interesting news here um, from our, uh, uh, this, oh, goodness gracious, there it goes, COVID. Um, COVID still in the news, still dealing with it. The Supreme Court earlier this week decided not to hear an appeal from Tyson Foods regarding two COVID meatpacking plant worker liability cases. If we can think back to 2020, when COVID erupted, there was a concerted effort to keep meat processing plants open. OSHA made some special rules and regulations. The meat packers all got together. They tried to keep these plants working so we didn't have such backups on farms across the country, even though they did develop. Well, as one would expect in a pandemic, a lot of folks still working, several uh, Tyson Foods employees did contract coronavirus and they have sued Tyson and their argument is that they should not have been forced to work and it looks like the Supreme Court has now said that Tyson is off the hook they're going to let the appeals court continue to stand but we do have Keith Miller back on the line with us Keith we get you back good Hey, there he is. So, Keith, you mentioned the Mexican ban on GMO corn imports. Of course, that's got corn growers in the U.S. very frustrated. What are you hearing from the livestock producer side down in Mexico? What's the local conversation on that issue? Well, the local conversation is they don't know how they're going to get enough corn without taking GMO corn because there's just not that much 
natural corn grown anywhere in the whole world anymore. So they're concerned but also. So maybe they can help convince their president that this isn't the issue he thought it was. Well, that's the thing. And if it's if it is the issue, he thinks it is, and they are going to cut off their livestock producers from an affordable feed source. I've got to imagine that's going to open the door for more U.S. meat into Mexico. Keith, is that uh, the conversation that's happening down there? Yes, uh, it's been talked about. So we just got to we got to really stay on top of this issue because it could have devastating effects on our exports to, to Mexico. It certainly can. And the rationale for the reasoning, the lack of the science backing is something that we are going to continue to see both governments have their back and forth on. Keith, I want to ask you about what you're doing. What does a trade mission look like? Are you going out talking with Mexican consumers about the value of meat? Are you talking at the retail level? What does a trade mission look like for USMEF? We are out talking to the retailers that are pushing our products and uh, trying to make them understand that we do have a really good quality, safe product, and uh, and it's affordable for them. And that's what we've been trying to do. We've also been talking to some consumers, but not too many. Uh, we've been visiting a lot of of uh, markets, all kinds of markets throughout the, the area, and they've been sh- showing us what uh, they would like to have, and we're trying to meet their demands. We're trying to change our cuts a little bit so they fit them, and that's the secret: is got to be, uh, got to take care of your customers. What they want is what you got to do. Absolutely. If you want them to buy it, you got to sell what they're asking for. So to that end, Keith, what concerns are you hearing? What would Mexican consumers like to see different from an American meat perspective? Well, there a lot of them are wanting a cheaper cut, uh, something that doesn't cost as much. And therefore, we have developed a chow uh, cut to be shipped to to Mexico, and they're excited about that. Uh, we actually test, tasted some of their products that they're cooking, and it was really good. And uh, that has a lot cheaper value, and it will make it so more Mexican people can afford to buy our products. As a Mexican retailers, Keith, are looking around for for meat to sell in their stores and their food service establishment, how easy is it for them to buy quality U.S. meat? Can they find a wholesaler easily enough across Mexico? Yeah, they, they're buying quite a bit of, of our products down here in Mexico. And uh, we was in probably 10 stores, and every one of them had our products in them. And it was all labeled very clearly that it was our products, and and they've been trying to sell um, advertising to the different areas that we do have that quality product. So, and I think the the U.S. MEF is doing a wonderful job down here, and hope they continue to meet the needs of this country. That's what it's all about. They're a neighbor. We've got easy connections to get our products down to that consumer base. Keith, what geography is your trade mission taking a look at? Obviously, you can't tour all of Mexico here in a couple of weeks' time. Where specifically are you guys uh, visiting? 
we're principally concentrating on the Monterey area. Uh, I didn't realize it, but Monterey has between six and seven million people in it. And uh, that's a huge market. It's the second largest city in Mexico. And so we're, we're spending most of our time on this particular trip in this one area. In Monterey, which, as you mentioned, is a major Mexican city, how are restaurants doing? Has Mexico kind of put COVID behind them? Are they seeing some food service activity resume? Yes. Food service down here, from what we can tell, is pretty well back to normal. Uh, The COVID is behind us. And uh, and that's great because um, the people are... Or and when we was in the shopping centers and stuff, the people were were there. None of them was wearing masks hardly at all. Uh, and I think COVID's behind us down here. Well, that is good news. You know, Keith, one of the concerns I hear from folks, we just talked about it with Dave Weber in segment one. When U.S. consumers go to the meat case, uh, they notice inflation moving those prices higher. What are prices of meat looking like down in Mexico? Is inflation taking a bite out of consumers' purchasing power? Yes, there's no question about that. Uh, It is taking a bite out of it, and that's one of the reasons why we're trying to meet some of their demands with lower quality cuts so that they can continue to buy our products. And so far, it's been real successful what we tried. That is good to hear. Keith, as you think about coming back, taking some of these suggestions from our, our Mexican trade partners and, and putting them into practice, what are some of the ones you're you're most excited about or you think might have uh, have the most legs in keeping the U.S. meat moving? Well, the biggest thing is keeping communication open with this country and making sure that we're listening to them, what their needs are and what their desires are and trying to meet those needs. And that's what we got to do is we got to keep the communication open. Keep that communication open. Keep those trains moving. Keep that meat going to the people who need it most and, of course, are willing to pay for it. It adds those values to U.S. farmers' bottom line on each head that we move out of this country. Keith, of course, USMEF does all kinds of great work in promoting U.S. meat sales abroad. Um, what would you? What would be your recommendation for folks if they want to learn more about how we're doing business? Well, we need to, you need to go to the USMEF's website, and it explains where all the countries that we're working in and why we're trying to export our products out. You think about all the jobs that uh, exporting meat does, and uh, it, it's a lot from the producers of the grain to the producers of the livestock to all the Absolutely. shipping companies. It's a, yes, it's indeed. It impacts all of us. That's Keith Miller from the USMEF X Chair joined us today. Stick here. Hi, we'll have more this AOA. Is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Pride. It runs deep for those in agriculture. But that pride can also prevent farmers from asking for help when it's needed most. An injury, illness, or natural disaster is a heavy burden for any operation to bear. Farm Rescue is here to help shoulder that burden. We are a nonprofit organization helping farm families in crisis with free planting, haying, and harvesting assistance. There is no pride lost when it comes to Farm Rescue. Learn more at farmrescue.org. Welcome to the 2023 Corn Sprint. Corn is in the blocks and ready to run. 
Biopath and Powercoat plants with a strong start to take the lead. Fueled by Mosaic Biological Fertilizer Complements for maximum performance and better nutrient uptake. We're seeing a strong return on fertilizer investment in this sprint. Biopath and Powercoat corn just continue to grow ahead. Improve your corn's nutrient use with Mosaic Biologicals. For corn that stays on track in the sprint, start training at cornsprint.com. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Let's take a look at the market trade on Thursday. The grain trade is relatively quiet, mixed around, unchanged, a couple of cents. Kansas City wheat under a little bit of continued pressure there, but otherwise a relatively quiet day on Thursday. USDA's Ag Outlook Forum calling for higher planted acreage of corn, soybeans, and wheat in 2023, up 3% from last year. It projected 228 million acres. Prices for all three crops projected to be lower than 2022, but remain elevated relative to historical averages over the past 10 years. Now, most in the trade, the numbers that are going to matter out of the Ag Outlook Forum will be the yield projections from USDA. They set cord yield at 181.5 bushels an acre versus 173.3 last year. Soybean yield at 52 bushels an acre versus 49.5 last year. And wheat yield at 49.2 bushels an acre versus 46.5 bushels an acre last year. In the case of corn and soybeans, if those numbers came to fruition, they would be record high and above a 30-year straight line trend yield. Now, the numbers from USDA, the primary reason that those yield numbers matter is that it gives us insight into the yields that USDA will likely use in its May WASDE report for its 23-24 marketing year balance sheet, and that's what will be traded at the time, whether they are justifiable or not. The acreage numbers that matter, that will be included in the May WASDE report. It'll be the results of a producer survey on planting intentions conducted March 1st and reported on March 31st. Now again, overall, grain markets relatively mixed and quiet on the day so far. Over in the livestock trade, cattle futures up moderately. News that Brazil is suspending exports of beef to China amid a case of mad cow disease seems to be impacting the market. Hogs slightly lower. This is AOA. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach, and in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today and next. We are digging into these commodity markets with our friend Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist from Stonex. Arlen, thanks for joining us today. Good to be back with you. Uh, I guess the rest of the world's in Washington and we're in the real world. Well, that's the thing, Arlen. you got to have a view from the real world when we're talking about stuff in Washington. But that is where I wanted to start. USDA Ag Outlook Forum underway. We've seen the outlooks come out so far this morning. Anything in there really surprising you quite yet, Arlen? Well, you need to know a little bit of my bias going into the Outlook form. Uh, it gets a lot of play every year, and it's one of the more frustrating times of the year for me because I think it has too much play. Um, there, there are, there's only really one number that has significance that comes out of that USDA Outlook form each year, and that's the yield estimates. Not because that's what I expect to happen, but because those yield estimates are usually what ends up being in USDA's first crop report balance sheet for the new marketing year, which comes out around May the 10th or so, and it usually sticks with that yield estimate. You can argue whether it's too high or too low, but that's the yield that will probably be in that balance sheet in May and what the markets will trade at that point. Everything else on that's released today from the Outlook Forum is going to change basically before we get to that first official balance sheet. All of it is simply based on economists sitting in their offices and uh, cranking numbers, not talking to the industry, not talking to producers. Um, the acreage numbers get a lot of play. Uh, the uh, those will change, and that's generally because the only acreage number that really matters is what p farmers intend to plant, and USDA will be surveying them as we get into next week, and those results will be announced on March 31st, and whatever comes out of that survey, that's what will be on the May balance sheet that gets traded, and even all the feed usage numbers uh, and everything else, most of that will probably change by that May report, but we have to talk about it because everyone else is talking about it, and it does have some influence on the markets. Yeah, you know, I've heard folks say that the Ag Outlook uh, Forum is a great time for ag media because it fills our schedules for a couple of days. But as you say, these numbers are all going to change. I do want to circle back to that consequential number from this report, those yield estimates. As of right now, if I'm reading it correctly, in corn, USDA is projecting 181.5 for the 23-24 yield weather-adjusted trend. Arlen, does that seem reasonable to you at this point in the year? Uh, it seems high. Could we do it? Yes, not because it's a trend yield, but because we could go into an El Nino this year, which tends to favor yields. If you look at a straight 30-year trend yield, it would come out right around 180. That would be a record. The previous record yield that we have seen was back in the 2017 at 176.6 bushels per acre. So a 181.5 would be almost five bushels above the previous record. Um, so that makes it a little bit of a stretch, but it could happen, not because USDA, not because it's a legitimate uh, trend yield, but because La Nina is, is really dying right now rather fast, that significantly reduces the risks of weather problems. We're seeing a weather pattern set up that's really starting to refill the soil profile right now. Probably going to 
do so more for the Midwest than it is for the plains. The plains are probably going to struggle with subsoil moisture levels for quite some time, but it does increase the odds that the core of the Midwest could see some good yields, and that, in an effect, could make USDA look like they knew what they were doing. <laughs> it could indeed. We've had a long time here in the growing season yet ahead of us, Arlen. But we do have a growing season wrapping up right now, and that's down in South America. That that first crop, soybean crop, is coming out. Of course, Stonex is connected deeply in Brazil. Arlen, what can you tell us? How's that harvest coming down there? It's coming very well. And what matters most right now is the northern part of the belt so they can harvest the soybeans and get the corn planted. That's a safrina corn crop that we've talked so much about. That That's the bulk of their exportable supplies. That needs to really be done by the 1st of March to reduce their risk of seeing the crop um, go through pollination after the dry season has arrived in uh, late April, early May. And so they're well on progress in that area. We'll get an update from Brazil tomorrow on the latest progress numbers as of last Friday. Cl getting close to two-thirds of the soybeans in Mato Grosso had been harvested, and about a little over 60% of the corn had been planted. That's a little bit behind average, but uh, the weather's been pretty cooperative over the past week and is expected to be over the next week too. So I think they're going to come pretty close to getting all the corn planted. They've been having heavy rains to the south. Um, that has slowed harvest progress to the south. They have a little bit more time there, so that's okay uh, as long as the pattern opens up. And we are seeing a slow migration southward of that rain which if that continues to be the case, that should help things go as they sh need to go. Uh, and I think they'll get it harvested. Uh, how it impacts us is those soybean farmers do not have the storage facilities necessary to store this big crop. So that's going to push a lot of beans onto the market. In fact, almost 4 billion bushels were yet to be sold by the farmer there in Brazil as of last week's uh, producer survey there. They sell it against the Chicago market, so that creates some headwinds for the Chicago soybean market. It's something we got to watch if Brazil farmers would suddenly become heavy sellers. Um, but they are making progress, and it does look to be a very big crop, probably somewhere around the 154, 155 million metric ton level. Arlen, I had been expecting some sort of labor dispute at the port or perhaps a trucker strike to erupt down there in Brazil, given that it is a very large crop and they are looking to get it moved. But I, I haven't heard anything. Have we had those kind of disruptions down there in Brazil this year? Well, that's actually a good insight because that's what you would expect because uh, truckers love to strike in Brazil and Argentina. Um, that region of the world loves that they have multiple strikes. Usually they're just a day or two in length. Uh, uh, sometimes they go longer if they're a day or two in length. That doesn't have much effect on the market. So far, I really haven't heard much. What we hear from our people down there is the biggest concern might be weather in some places where the persistent rains uh, prohibit loading the boats at the docks. That could be a problem with their facilities they have down there. So far, we have not seen any delays in loadings yet, but something we're monitoring. All right, Arlen, over across the Pacific Ocean, I've seen some headlines that it looks like China's economy is starting to ramp back up. Congestion is building in those cities. Are we still seeing China taking an active look to uh, securing soybean supplies? 
It, we are. There's been some rumors out there them back into the cash market. They've bought a few cargoes for next fall delivery. Right now, they're pretty focused, though, on buying from Brazil, and it does look like Brazil's going to have supplies right on into our fall harvest, so that could eat into next fall's exports, U.S. exports somewhat. And uh, why I felt like USDA was a little bit too optimistic in their soybean export number for the next marketing year that came out this morning from the Outlook form. I think that'll be a concern. But we do see China uh, starting to see some increase in demand. And we and I think, based on my conversations with our people there, that they will buy more than what USDA is anticipating because they'll need to refill their reserve supplies of both corn and soybeans that they depleted somewhat this last year when prices were high. So I expect to see demand be a little bit better there. We're going to have to monitor that, though, relative to rising tensions between China and the United States. This has been a week that China has really stepped up the rhetoric in their state media against the United States, indicating that tensions are at an all-time high right now, and they're doing some things that could result in U.S. sanctions. It could be problematic for U.S. exports. So that's a situation we're going to have to monitor. Oh, boy. Arlen, of course, we get into the political world. We never know what may come. But if U.S. sanctions get put on something from China, I imagine the market's expectation would be that we'd see China retaliate likely against agricultural products. Is that the expectation? Well, and those sanctions, if some financial sanctions can actually make it more difficult for us to sell soybeans to China, even if China doesn't retaliate. So, uh, the, right now, the key is whether China start actually provides lethal aid to Russia in their war in Ukraine. I don't think they're going to do that in the near term. Right now, we expect that probably by tomorrow or so, they'll be announcing some type of a proposed peace plan in the Russia-Ukraine war. That'll probably be something like them offering security for Russia if Russia will pull back and accept a ceasefire of some type, I don't think that'll go anywhere. If it doesn't go anywhere, then the next step might be for China to offer some type of lethal aid down the road. All right, Arlen, before we let you go, bringing the conversation back to the United States, ethanol demand, do you anticipate that to accelerate here in the short term? Uh, well, we've had some weather problems this week, so we could see some more problems in this week's production estimates as we get into spring and past the maintenance section. I do think there is some opportunity for improvement overall, though I think it's going to be disappointing. Longer term, I'm more optimistic. I think it has some tremendous opportunity to be a, a feedstock for sustainable aviation fuel, and the government has approved it as such. That's probably where we're going to see the strength in the ethanol market longer term over the next two to three years. All right. That SAF, Sustainable Aviation Fuel, we've heard a lot about it. It'll be interesting to see how it impacts the ag economy as it rolls out. Folks, we have been speaking with Arlen Suderman today, Chief Commodities Economist with Stonex. Arlen, thank you so much for joining us as always. Thank you, Mike. And folks, stick around. We'll have more AOA coming up when we return right after this. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people 
lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve together, we can make a difference bite by bite. Mosaic is introducing two new biological products, Biopath and PowerCoat. We're digging into the details of those with Ross Bender. He's the director of new product development at the Mosaic Company. Ross, thank you so much for joining us today. Mike, thank you so much for the time. Looking forward to the conversation. Well, there has been an awful lot of interest in biologicals these days. Ross, why do you think that trend continues to rise among farmers? We believe that unlocking the performance of the crop nutrition investments a farmer makes is possible by exploring the biological space. And we believe partnering those technologies together with your tried and true mineral nutrition sources is a really key component to maximizing that investment. And we're calling that advanced crop nutrition. How does Mosaic think about biologicals? Soils are complex. Crop nutrition is complex. There are a variety of biological and physical and chemical attributes to that. And we too think that a holistic approach should be applied to how we manage crop nutrition. Ross, before we let you go, if there are farmers out there who have never looked very closely at biologicals, what's your message to them here in 2023? My recommendation to a grower is to start to become comfortable with them. At the very least, start learning. I, I'm a grower myself. I farm a little bit in East Central Wisconsin. And I have to admit, I am learning at the same time. But ultimately, my goal is to maximize the impact of the investment that I make in my crop nutrition program. And I believe that harnessing the power of biology to unlock the potential of the chemistry and the physical properties of our soil is absolutely critical. So I would encourage growers to take a spirit of curiosity approach here and, and be a student of the crop and be a student of the science to see what you can learn and try somewhere, start somewhere. Uh, exploring the utilization of biologicals into your production system. Ross, where can our audience go to learn more about biologicals here at Mosaic? My favorite place to go to learn more is a website called cropnutrition.com. 
The archaeological record suggests that wheat was first cultivated in the regions of the Fertile Crescent, also known as the Cradle of Civilization, around 9600 BC. The Roman goddess Ceres, who was deemed protector of the grain, gave grains their common name today, cereal. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three-quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. The first bagel rolled into the world in 1683 when a baker from Vienna, Austria, was thankful to the king of Poland for saving Austria from Turkish invaders. The baker reshaped the local bread so that it resembled the king's stirrup. The new bread was called bugel, derived from the German word for stirrup. Ancient traditional tortillas were made from ground corn by Mexican natives as long as 2,000 years ago. However, flour tortillas only started to become popular in the 19th century. More types of foods are made with wheat than with any other cereal grain. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues here today. We've got a couple of headlines that are going to be moving the ag industry over the coming weeks. Certainly several stories that we have been talking about. Well, we're seeing some progress on some of them. One of the larger stories that the global ag industry has been keeping an eye on is the progress of grain out of the Black Sea. In order to make that happen, of course, there had to be that agreement between Russia and Ukraine overseen by Turkey to get that grain corridor door open so that Ukrainian grain could continue moving out into the market. And of course, this is an issue for solvency there for Ukrainian and Russian farmers getting that grain movement, getting paid. But also it's a function of the hunger crisis that is enveloping a lot of the developing world. After COVID and after the war, we saw wheat trade really thrown into a turmoil and uh, they're still trying to get that sorted out. So as a lot of you are aware, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of the Ukrainian, uh, excuse me, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That grain deal has been in place now for about nine months, and talks are underway to reopen that corridor. I shouldn't say reopen. It is still open. Talks are underway to maintain that grain corridor. And Ukraine has now put forward what they'd like to see in the new agreement. This is the Black Sea Grain Initiative. This is the, the deal put together between UN and Turkey that allowed grain to be exported from uh, Ukrainian ports. The current agreement is in place until March 18th. At that point, either a new deal would have to be be signed, perhaps an extension of the current deal. Either way, given the large stockpiles of wheat in the Black Sea region, the trade is watching this, wants to know whether or not that grain is going to make its way onto the global stage. Ukraine has said they are going to request that it not extend uh, more than 120 days, and they want to try and figure out the volumes that they are going to be moving. The other thing Ukraine would like is they would insist on seeing an increase in the number of inspection teams. Uh, their argument has been these inspection teams have been slow. These vessels have been loaded with wheat, waiting for inspection at the port for weeks, not getting moved. So they say if they want to see this continue, they need to ramp up the number of inspections. And Russia has denied those accusations. They've denied that inspections have been slow. They say they're meeting all the obligations under the export deal. As of now, there is a lot of incentive to keep this thing 
open from the global stage, but there's not a lot locally. As of right now, the Ukrainians say, quote, there is no positive momentum. At the same time, the UN, Turkey, and Ukraine are ready to conduct 40 inspections per day if necessary, and there is such a need. He says 140 ships are waiting for inspection currently there on the or at various ports across Ukraine. So we'll see if those can start moving. In other global news, we've been talking about the need to expand American meat export destinations. And we're starting to see some of that demand come to fruition. The Philippines is a place that has been grappling with uh, foot and mouth disease in their hog herd. They've been grappling with several other uh, illnesses uh, throughout the livestock sector. And they have announced their Department of Agriculture in the Philippines, which oversees what sort of meat can be imported, has said that they are restructuring two interagency bodies. And the whole goal is to fast track accreditation of foreign companies who can export meat into the Philippines. So before you can ship, uh, you know, a pork roast into the Philippines, you, the company doing the shipping has to be approved. And that has, you know, there's bureaucratic paperwork and it takes some time. And of course it's slow and domestic companies don't want you coming in, selling that pork loin, competing against their domestic products. So there's those sort of political headwinds as well. The Philippines are looking to try and change that. About 10 days ago, they issued a special order reforming the pre-inspection committee and the accreditation review body. Both of these groups are going to work together to streamline that process, which should help allow more foreign companies, and I'm thinking specifically about American companies, getting more of a foothold in that Philippine market, which is huge. Folks, you look at Southeast Asia, Philippines, the, Indone uh, the, the Philippines, Indonesia, the rest of the countries in that corner of the world, they are growing, they are aggressive, and uh, they are full of people whose incomes are rising and they're looking to get higher quality protein. So, the more opportunities we have to sell it to them, the better off we certainly are all going to be. And we've got another ag trade story percolating on the geopolitical global stage, and this is in Pakistan. They are looking for breakthroughs, they announced, in agriculture and IT. Those are the two industries that Pakistan is most looking to advance in their own country during their first ministerial-level meeting of a U.S.-Pakistani trade and investment body. Folks, the U.S. trade officials have not met with Pakistani trade officials in at least seven years. So this is a push in the right direction. Uh, not a huge market there in Pakistan, as one would imagine, but they are trying to strengthen ties between the two countries. Obviously, political tensions between the U.S. and Pakistan have been a bit back and forth, perhaps, to put it nicely. But as of right now, Pakistan and the U.S. are doing about $12 billion worth of trade each year. So it is a number. It's not huge, but the Pakistanis are looking for it to grow. They say, quote, it is important that we start talking. These were supposed to be annual meetings, but for one reason or another, they have been on the back burner for so long. Now that we are starting, there are many areas where we expect to see some breakthroughs, and that is true on both sides. Catherine Tai uh, has not commented, but uh, she is included in that meeting. She is the U.S. trade rep, of course, uh, spearheading a lot of these negotiations around the world.
Before we go, we've got some news coming out of the EU. And of course, uh, we've talked a lot about the EU approach to raising animal protein. And it's not one that's been very friendly to those animal protein producers. And uh, that looks like it's going to continue. Delft University in the Netherlands is now finding that they want to add a sticker that says buying meat it can bring serious negative consequences. And they want to stick that on the meat in the meat case. And what their research has found is that a sticker showing that meat has negative consequences for the environment can be just as effective as some of the other more vegan policies in scaring people away from buying that meat. Folks, the Europeans are not friendly to animal agriculture right now. And they mentioned that think of this as seeing the Surgeon General's warnings on cigarette packs. That's what they're trying to do with meat over in the EU. We'll see if it has legs or if that narrative can change across the pond. Folks, thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Tune in tomorrow. We'll cover more of the stories that impact agriculture right here. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. What a great organization, helping families in need like ours. It's a godsend. When an unexpected crisis strikes, Farm Rescue is here to help. Assistance is available free of charge to farm families experiencing a major injury, illness, or natural disaster. Our volunteers and equipment are ready to spring into action with planting, haying, and harvest support. If you or someone you know could use a helping hand, visit farmrescue.org today. The landscape of media has changed, and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm Radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council.